Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives, so don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Chris Bates, welcome back to episode two of our Property Investor mini-series, mate. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Alan. Good to be here. Last episode, we talked about basically like we basically went out there and said, this is everything that we think you need to know about property in say 30 or 40 minutes. In this episode, I really want to drill into this idea of the upgrader. So I'm hoping you can just define what we mean by upgrader and then we'll just go straight for it from there. Look, I think it's someone who's looking to um, go into a different asset for a different lifestyle reason, right? So it might be a couple that's now had kids that want a bigger place. Um, you know, I think any upgraders want someone who's selling a property to, to buy another property, um, you know, and it's sort of similar to sort of downsizes, but with an upgrader, um, they're looking to probably go into more debt. And it's actually, there's challenges in doing that, you know, challenges in terms of can they do it, in terms of how much they can borrow. Um, you know, usually the challenges in better it being a better asset um, and how much that's gone up versus what they've currently owned. Um, and so the upgraders is, it's, I mean, it's a real big emotional thing as well. You know, we find it um, 
Hopefully they've done it all right in their first property. And this is why we love helping first home buyers and investors is that we know the importance of even just yesterday's client was going to buy an apartment in a in the high rise hell, I call it, you know, around <laughs> the sort of airport um, in, in Sydney, right? Where there's thousands of apartments, right? And we sort of re-educated them and said, well, I know you want to work there. You know, I know that's, um, you know, live there. I know it's easy for your work and everything. But, you know, if you just changed your budget very slightly higher, and you made a lifestyle compromise in the short term and bought into one of these areas, you know, for example, like the, the Balmain or Dremoyne or, you know, um, you know, in Sydney, for example, um, you get into a different market, you get an asset that's going to work for you. So assuming someone's got some, you know, build up and, and sometimes people think, oh, well, I'll buy a property and I'll pay it off and I'll build equity that way. Well, you're missing the trick, you know, if, if you're buying a property and then paying it mm. off, that's just saving hard. You know, anyone can do that. You could save into shares and that probably be even better than paying off a mortgage, right? And so what, what upgraders are is they're basically looking to say, you know what, we're not want, we don't want to be here anymore. We want to be in another property. Um, I think the key ones, the ones who want to buy their almost their forever home, right? Yeah. I'm going to, the kids are going to be here or maybe not the dream, dream home, but the home that's going to get them through the the teenage years of kids and to that sort of um, when they move out, you know, because it's such a a stressful time, you know, you've got school zones, you you don't really want to be, you know, upgrading three or four times through their schooling, et cetera. Um, And so we truly really educate our clients on how they can do it, stop them going down the wrong track. They've got a property and then all of a sudden, oh, why don't we buy an investment property when they haven't thought about upgrading first um, and, and the benefits of potentially doing so in terms of having a better asset growing for them tax-free. So lots let's, to cover in this episode, Owen. Let's talk about that. So what are the what are the benefits of upgrading an exist, like your existing like place of residence versus buying an investment property? Let's say, for example, I've been living in my house for three years. I've got a few hundred grand of equity. Why wouldn't I buy an investment property with that equity instead of like, what are the benefits of upgrading? Look, if you're in a property, right, that could suit you long-term, right? It's not a one-bedroom apartment with three kids, but, you know, like you've got to, it could do, right? You know, you would be happy there. Yeah. And, and it's not something about that really is, you know, annoying you from a lifestyle point of view, right? So uh, it's, or it's not a real poor property, right? There's no point being in an asset and going, it suits us, we're fine, but ultimately it's not going to grow anywhere near like the market. You should upgrade just because you're, you're not you're in an asset that's going to uh, opportunity cost building there anyway, right? But if you're in a property that's a semi decent asset, you want to live there long term, um, and you like the area, um, and you're sort of comfortable on the mortgage, then maybe upgrading isn't a necessity; it's an option. And then you could have that conversation. You go, well, we've got a long term solution for our housing. Should we upgrade, um, or should we then go and invest? Um, and that's a, that's the thing. But a lot of people are in that asset where you know it's best for them to upgrade because. They've got, they haven't got an asset that's going to suit them long-term. So, for example, in this client here, they've got this house and land package that ultimately hasn't got restricted supply, which we spoke about in the first episode. The demand's also the affordability sector, not the aspirational high-income sector. So they've got the ability to refinance because they're on really good incomes. And they've got the cash because they have a, um, enough equity in this place. So instead of going to compound their problem, I believe, and buy another poor asset, they could get into a, into a quality investment. Um, so in their example, they could go Bayside, a house somewhere along the train line towards Frankston, um, you know, really close to the beach, limited supply scarce, but also suits high-income families. And so they would shift into a bigger tax-free asset. So, I mean, upgrading um, makes sense for a lot of those reasons. But if, but if you are in a property that, you know, you're happy in long-term, it's a really interesting one because when interest rates are really low, um, i.e. 2%, Upgrading makes a lot more sense because you're taking on debt that's not that expensive to go into a tax-free growth asset. When interest rates are around 4%, though, 
that's going to really, that conversation is going to really pop up because you go, well, why would I upgrade my home and take on another million dollars of debt, which is another 40 grand a year of in, um, interest? Um, I've got to be confident that's going to get me that return back. Maybe I should just go buy an investment property. And so I think that it is going to shift a lot in the next year where upgraders are going to really take the foot off the pedal a little bit um, and be scared of taking on that additional debt. Um, and then it's going to shift people more into sort of, well, I'll, I'll buy an investment property. So let's say, um, let's say, for example, I'm in the market for upgrading. Would I buy a house first or sell first? Like what would be the, just the, I know it's kind of like, that's only like one consideration, but what would be kind of the thoughts that go into that decision? It's a really big um, question, right? And we, we, every single person's got a different sort of scenario. Um, mm. And it, it, it really is like that. The first thing we want to know is, um, and clients will come to us and we say, okay, well, the next best thing is to upgrade, right? And they're thinking about that or maybe they haven't thought about that before. The first thing I want to know is how good is the asset that you're in now? Now, if it's a really poor asset, you've got risks of potentially buying first because you don't know what you're going to sell for, right? So what you want to know is, is how long is it likely to take to sell? Mm. You know, So you get in contact with three or four of the best agents in the area that are selling, um, you ideally try to speak to a buyer's agent in the area. You go to auctions or similar properties. Just understand how is the market? What is it likely to sell at? And you've got to track those numbers ongoing, right? So if you've got a property that is compromised, it's dark, it's on a busy road, it's really one of the ugly ducklings in the area, for a lot of clients, we'd probably say, you know, let's get that sold first, but let's try to potentially limit how long you're out of the market. So do all your research on what you're going to upgrade into really understand how much you can borrow, understand that even if you sell it for not a great price, you're still going to potentially have enough cash to do the upgrade. Um, but if you've got a really good asset, right, and something that suits your family, the last thing you want to do in a hot market and even in down markets um, is, you know, not down markets, but sort of, you know, markets that are holding their value mm. is just to sell, put the money in the bank and then go rent something um, and then try to get back into the market because, you know, what you can easily see is the market can move either upwards or if it goes downwards, obviously it may benefit you. But if it does go upwards, you can really start to chase the market. You get stressed. Um, all of a sudden you buy the wrong property um, and you've all of a sudden, um, the whole purpose of upgrading has been defeated because you've got the wrong asset. And so it is a real sort of case by case. A lot of people can't afford to sort of buy the next property and still hold their current property. Because to do that, they've got to have a lot of income to support that whole debt. Mm -hmm. um, and so they've got to come up with ways of potentially buying on a long settlement, doing things like relocation loans um, and to, to, to allow them to buy before they sell. What's a, what's a relocation loan? Is that like a bridging loan? Yeah. So there's two types of bridging loans. There's bridging loans that are done through um, private lenders um, who will basically take over all your loans and, and fund your current property plus your new purchase. And they'll probably charge you 1% a month, right? Like really expensive. Wow. And then when you've sold your, you know, your first property, you then go back to a retail bank and, you know, try to get a really good rate, right? And so that's what bridging finance traditionally has been. But relocation loans are like bridging finance but they're done through retail banks, right? So they're done through Westpac or, you know, et cetera, right? Um, and what they'll be done is they're done at a high rate, maybe done at four or 5%, you know, not at two to 3%, but they're only done on, the only that high rate's only on a portion of the loan, the, the bridging portion, not the whole loan. Um, and what they allow you to do is basically buy before you sell. And then you've got potentially six to 12 months after you settle on the new property to get your property sold 
before they'll potentially ask you to sell them both, right? Mm. Um, and so they're a really good option, but they're, they're, they're actually, in terms of how much you can borrow on them um, is, is, is limited because they have to put buffers in there and how much equity you've got in the bank size is much smaller when you're doing a bridging loan because they haircut your sale price quite significantly. First, they do a valuation on the property, which will usually be conservative versus what the market is. Then they'll haircut that 15% and then they'll only lend 80% on that. So, you know, a $2 million property in the bank size might only be 1.2 million, right? Um, Because they haircut it so much. Mm. and, you're, and you've got a loan of a million dollars on it. So in there you go, well, I've got a million dollars of equity. No, in the bank size, you've got 200,000, which isn't enough to fund the next purchase. So relocation loans are really good when you've got you know, strong incomes um, and you've got heaps of equity. Um, okay. And uh, if you haven't got that, then potentially your only option is to do just basically buy on a long settlement and sell on a short settlement, which we, we can talk through. Yeah. Um- this, but so does like what's the risk there, Chris? Like if you do that, you, okay. So you can't. So let's just move aside from bridging and relocation. Um, like if you use that strategy of like long and short settlements, what like what's the risk there? There's heaps of risks involved, and so it's really understanding. You know how does this apply in your situation? Try to think through all of these before you just sort of quickly go out and buy a property. Then you know cross your fingers and hope it is. The key risk is this: the when you buy a property, you know you would you've got to give yourself enough time to settle the sale of your property, right? And so when I say long settlements, we're really talking ninety or one twenty days. You know, anything less than that, you're starting to put a little more pressure on yourself. Um, potentially, you could do it, but when you do a ninety days or one twenty days, you give them. You also ask for the option to bring that settlement forward if you sell your property, which a lot of vendors will allow you to do, right? So you buy this property. Um, on 90 days but when before you buy that property on that same day what you need to do is go back and sense check the sale of your property so while you're also looking for new properties you also want to be going to auctions and tracking the sale of your current property you've got to basically have a foot in both camps because when you go to have the confidence to go and buy something on 90 days you also have to you know know it's the right property for you it's a quality asset Um, you can afford it from a loan point of view and from an equity point of view you're going to have enough cash from the sale on a bad day, but you also want to know that you're going to be able to definitely sell your property within that 90 days. Because most people are going to have to run a three or four week campaign plus an auction, uh, and then you need at least six weeks of settlement. So now you're up to 10 weeks already. So that's 70 days and you've only got 90 days to, to settle on the purchase. And so it doesn't take much for the campaign to stuff up or a couple of offers to fall over or you know have some repair issues mm. or um, you know, you couldn't get the photographs done for the first weeks. So you've lost a week. Um, and so you've really got to, if you're going to do this strategy of buying a long settlement, you've got to basically have all your ducks lined up. So first, it's the, the confidence on the sale. You've got to pick your agent before you buy as well. You've told them that you mm-hmm. need to get this on the market fast. That's part of the, you using them. Um, and you've got to have your property ready for sale. So you can't be like, oh, I found a property in 90 days. And then, oh, you know what? I still need to paint it and, and tidy up the gardens. No, you get that. Your property is perfectly ready today. It just needs a, a good clean and some photos to be done, right? Um, the key risk, obviously, you know, you can controlling the buyer because you, you're purchasing something on a long settlement. So you know exactly the purchase price. Um, as long as you factor in selling your property on a bad day. So let's say you've got three agents through and they say on a bad day, we'll sell it for 1.5. On a good day, 1.8. As long as you're basing your numbers on a bad day, also with a bit more buffer, um, you know that even if the worst case happens, you sort of have to take a, a poor price, you can still settle on the purchase. Mm. Um, and that's really the risk is the market moves from the time you purchase 
which you might purchase say on a Saturday, right? You really want your property on, on the market on the Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. And so you're buying and you're also selling in the same market and you haven't got this sort of issue of where the market that you bought in, the market you sold in changed dramatically. Now we did get, you, you can get client caught out on this and clients have been caught out. We got caught out in March last year, you know, when COVID happened, in March 2020. You know, they bought early March and then, you know, all that stuff happened in March and mm. you know, the market shifted so fast. It also shifted a lot, you know, this year over sort of the Christmas period to the January, February period in terms of interest rates. And so what you, you want to do is minimise that time period between when you purchase and you put it on the market. Um, that's really the risk. The risk is that you don't sell it for enough, then you haven't got enough cash to, to basically go ahead with the purchase. Um, and you also have to take a fire sale price. You really did the numbers on selling your place for $2 million and you only got one point yeah. That meant you can't settle on the next purchase. And then you also potentially overspent on the, on the buy because you bought the wrong property. Uh, you, you were overpaid. And that transaction, because it's two transactions, you've lost on both. So, um, yeah, it's something that you can carefully pull off. Now, if, if you have thought all that this through, and I was a really long answer to your question, Owen, mm. it can really work because you're not out of the market. You can be super patient. You're pre-approved. You're ready to go. You've got your property ready to go as well. And then when the right property comes on, you really act fast, right? And you, you're not out. You're not having to worry about being homeless or renting, et cetera. Um, and if your property is ready for sale and you've, you know, and you get it all presented, well, who knows? You may actually get more than you expect in terms of the sale price. And so a lot of our clients in the last two years have bought well because they've, you know, been able to be patient with it and, and make sure it's the right property for them. But then they've also got, you know, surprising results at the auction. Even just last week, a client upgraded in the lower North Shore. They thought their apartment would get 1.5, ended up getting 1.7. So, you know, great, got great views. It had something scarce about it. People went hot on it. Um, and they bought really well, a nice house in the lower north shore at 2.5, just pre-auction, first day it was first day it was even, you know, shown to people, right? They just acted fast. So you can win on both sides of the transaction if you play it smart. Mm. I um I I I feel like you want you also want to leave as many tools in your arsenal as you can, like in terms of when you're negotiating for a property. You want to be able to try and be flexible if you can um, and present good offers to them. I feel like that's an important consideration as well. Um, yeah, sorry, it's a go good on. point, actually. Oh, and I didn't say that. Um, you sort of pointed it out. So the, the other risk of it is, is that when you're purchasing, um, you know, and this is not as big as an issue we've found, is that you've got to be able to negotiate a longer contract, right? And some sellers just can't do it. You know, like if you want, they need the money in four or six weeks, you know, usually mm. six weeks. And, you, the, the way to work on it, when you're trying to buy on a long settlement, you're trying to catch something very early in their campaign, ideally something pre-market. Off-market's a bit of a myth out there. Yeah, they happen, but it's not really something that's a massive part of the market. But there's lots of people who are thinking about selling their property. They're going to put it on the market, but in the in the weeks that they're getting their photos done and the clean done, and the, the agents say, well, if I get a great offer, would you sell early? You know, it's better for the agent, right? Um, and so if you can catch a property and also not many people eyeballs have seen it because it's not on any platforms, et cetera. And also the, the seller's already thinking, well, I've got two weeks to get it ready, four-week campaign plus six weeks to settle. I'm already thinking I'm not going to get any money for another three months. And so that's how you buy on a long settlement, catching something early, increase your chance. But the key thing is when you buy on a long settlement, you can't, if some other buyer wants to buy your place on a long settlement, you, can't, you have to say no to their offer. Yeah, And so if they're like you wanting to buy on a long settlement, well, you don't have a strong enough, as much demand um, 
as you do when you're potentially allowing people to also buy on long settlements. And so if your property suits first-time buyers and investors, generally they don't really want long settlements. Mm. Um, investors are usually got the cash. They don't have to sell something else. And first-time buyers are generally able to do short settlements. But if your property really suits upgraders, it can be a bit of an issue here trying to sell on a short settlement. Mm. Um, how about this? Like something that um, I've got in the show notes is basically buying it as an investment before you need it. I guess that all comes back to borrowing power and equity in your primary, your current home. Yeah, we, we also, I mean, if it's a great investment, right? Um, let's say you're a couple and, um, you know, or, you know, you think you might have kids one day and, or you may want to leave Sydney. We get this quite a bit. You know, maybe they're from a regional town and they know when they want kids, they want to move back to Orange or Central Coast or Wollongong, et cetera. But right now they still want to live the city life and they're quite happy in their, you know, two-bedroom apartment. We're doing one at the moment. They're in Melbourne. They're a cute apartment in, um, you know, Elwood, for example, and they're going to move to a regional town, um, you know, mm. when they have kids, right? And so what we're doing is we're buying their future home that we know is um, a quality investment. So we're not, in regional towns, we, we're big fans of the sister cities, for example, of capital cities, um, the things that are commutable, the things that have got their own little, um, you know, economy, I guess, but also got a lot of older wealth. And so what we're trying to do is get into those pockets in these regional towns. So absolutely, if you can afford it from an equity and a borrowing capacity point of view, and it's a good investment, why would you sort of go down buying another investment or just sitting on your hand and trying to buy that quality asset in five years' time when you need it? Because it also can take some time to actually do an upgrade. Um, you then got to go into the marketplace. You've got to search. You've got to miss out at auctions, et cetera, like that. So that's one of the other benefits of buying it early is that, um, you know, you can basically take your time and really wait for that property, mm. even if it takes 12 months. You haven't got any pressure. There's no kids schooling or babies to think about. Um, you're doing it when you've got that headspace to do it. Um, the big risk of buying your future home, though, um, before you need it is, is life's uncertain, right? Life's unpredictable. I mean, it's the risk of making any decision in life yeah. is, is that you may regret it. But you don't want to go and buy your future home if you're not really thought it through. And if it's not a quality investment, then maybe just buy it when you get to that stage. Um, but, yeah, that is the big risk. You know, you, you end up not moving to that regional town and, um, and then you, you know, have to sell it and then buy another to upgrade anyway, and you've got stamp costs and selling costs. There's one big uh, one big thing that I wanted to tuck onto this conversation, mate, which is people that have a home, they're looking to upgrade, but they're looking at building or they're looking at doing their own reno and upgrading their current house. Like what are some of the considerations that people should have if they're looking to build a new house so they buy a block or they knock it down, whatever? Like I feel like there's risk involved here. Yeah, so it's an interesting one. Like, I mean, the the challenge is, I mean, for example, we're in this life stage, to be honest, right? So we've um, you know, got a house, yeah, you've it done could that. be fine. Um, and we're thinking our next move would be buying a really block, nice block of land and, and doing a nice build on it, right? Um, but to do that, you know, it's not something that you can just, um, A, you've got to be able to have the finance to, to buy the land. Because if you, if you want to basically do an upgrade into that, you're not going to have a house overnight, you know? You're talking mm. a year or two to get a DA, you know, a year or two to build it, um, best case. Um, then you've got building issues and all that sort of stuff. So when you're sort of trying to, you know, do an upgrade and also do a build, you've got to potentially factor in whether you can keep your current home to allow you till you get to the end of that finished product or maybe you've got to keep your current home till you get to the build phase and then you go rent for a year or two in the build. Um, or, you know, maybe you've got to sell your home to buy the land, uh, but then you've got to factor in the cost of renting plus holding the land plus the cost for architects and plus the, you know, all the DAs and, you know, um, and then the ability to get a construction loan, et cetera. So 
builds is something we do quite a bit on for clients. Um, and you know, there's a huge risk at the moment. We've had lots of clients that um, and this is not a this is an issue whether you want to renovate, to be honest, or whether you want to do a knockdown rebuild or, or something like that. Um, mm. It's getting that sort of uh, fixed price contracts because banks are going to, you, you know, if you want to do a owner builder or you want to self fund it, um, banks won't really want to go anywhere near you. So they're going to want to see something called a fixed price building contract, um, and it's trying to get that at a reasonable price and a quality builder is is really tough at you know different points in the market. So would that be just a fixed price building contract? <clears throat> I understand you're not a builder, Chris. At least that's what I, I'm led to believe. Yeah, um, look at these hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, so would that be like through a, typically through a bigger builder, like they want to see, I don't know, Porter Davis, Metricon, I don't know, name a big builder that you know. Is that kind of what the banks want to see? Oh, no, they, they, they also we've got those types of builds, right, which we're very hesitant recommending them for clients. They definitely sometimes work. We've got a client doing one at the moment, um, you know, somewhere like Botany, right, um, in Sydney. And that that's potentially you, you, you're good to go through these type of builders um, because they're potentially getting a product cheaper. Um, and, uh, you know, that may mean you don't overcapitalise. And that's a big thing with renos and building is the dangers of overcapitalising. Um, I feel like I'm in that boat at the moment. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and it's uh, it's difficult, right, um, you know. So um, we, you got those type of fixed price contracts. Yeah, absolutely. But all the big builders and all the big, you know, renovators will, will also allow you to do that. Basically what they do is if it's a million dollar build, they'll cut it into five, 200 grand each, you know, within reason. Um, and they'll pay that builder at different stages along the process. You know, there's a small fees potentially with valuations and um, you know, potentially you have to pay, you can go interest only through the build and, and things like that. Um, but ultimately that's what it is. You know, the, the, the bank and you aren't going to get surprised because, you know, the builder told you a million dollars and then it ended up at costing 1.5 and then you haven't got the cash and the bank's going to be a negative equity, et cetera. Um, they really control the maximum you can spend on that build rather than something called a cost plus, which a lot of builders want to do at the moment, right? I, and a lot, the reason a lot of builders are struggling, it's called the profitless boom for builders because mm. they're on fixed price contracts. They've locked in over the last few years. A lot of them bought work because they're worried in COVID that they're going to not have enough work. So they've signed up all these contracts on really cheap builds, building prices have gone through the roof. Yeah, so then you've got, um, I mean, so that's the first type, which is sort of the fixed price building contract where you've um, the builder's going to be paid over five stages. Everyone sort of knows what's going to cost. The other type is that cost plus, which, um, you know, the builder can protect themselves if labour gets more expensive or materials gets more expensive and then you make alterations, then that's okay. Um, whereas with a fixed price contract, alterations can be super hard, right, to get through and um, can really burn you. The builder will, will, will charge you a lot. So, it's, it's a real crazy area building at the moment. Um, we've got lots of clients who have got a builder. Um, we've had lots of clients. Builders have actually gone bust on them, et cetera. Um, they've had to go to new builders halfway through builds. It's not pretty at all. Um, and some, you know, even clients who have negotiated too hard on the fixed price contract. Um, and that also meant the, the builder was losing money and they walked away, et cetera. So, um, yeah, big builds are, are a dangerous place to sort of play in. But, you know, you can also find that they add the most value, especially if you do an amazing quality build, um, an asset that's just so desirable. The end product is so desirable to the marketplace because they're like, well, I'd love to live in that street on that location. And that is just so on trend and it so would suit our family and modern day living. And, you know, um, so you can add huge value through these builds, even if they do cost a lot as well. Um, yeah. Because we've seen, like, I was chatting to a chippy, a carpenter, uh, a couple of days ago, who dropped by to give us a quote on something. He said, like, the price of hardwood is up 100% in a year. Price of steel is not far away from that. Um, and labor's gone through the roof. 
and he's like, that's just in a year. So imagine the builders that have locked in, you know, supply of, you know, materials and given a fixed price, uh, they're struggling. Like a lot of builders operate on 10% profit margins, you know, so. Absolutely right. Um, big competition. And um, we had a client recently doing a build. We've got a couple, one in Brisbane that can't renovate, just cannot get a builder, can't get a quote for months, right? And then, is you know, someone comes in and then does, doesn't even send a quote through. They've got, and then they, boy, they put a stupid figure on it. Oh, I'll do it, but it's only $2 million. And like, hey, I thought it was going to be a mill. Got one real life example just in the last week. A client was, they thought it'd be 1.1. The new quote from the same builder, 1.8 um, for the same wow. build. Um, and, you know, also a contingency in there that if it does, if you don't sign up to it now and it's, you know, within the three months, there potentially could be an additional up to 500 grand of costs. Um, so it's like, you know, we're not even valid. This quote is really valid today, but if it, you start changing on me, I'm going to have to change this quote, right? Um, if you sort of drag your feet. So, yeah, upgrades are a really interesting place. I mean, the reality is um, if you're in a home that's not going to suit you long-term, you need a solution. Renting is very difficult in the Australian uh, marketplace. Firstly, you've got obviously issues of rents going up over the longer term. And if you live in a property for 15, 20 years, you might not be worried about the first rent increase, but you may be worried about in 10 years' time or the landlord kicks you out. I mean, you're lucky to get more than a 12-month lease. You know, a lot of people don't want to sign up um, their tenant longer than that because when you sell the property you've got to, it's you're more likely going to get a best price on a sale if you haven't got a tenant and so they don't want to potentially limit their potential ability to sell in the future they also want to be able to up your rent um, move back into it so the vendor or the the owner landlord wants that sort of flexibility so it's really difficult to rent it's also getting harder and harder to rent quality assets because they're always selling to owner occupiers not to other investors if they ever come on the market um, and so yeah if you haven't got a long-term solution you need to potentially think that through but also if you're not in a great asset you should potentially look to upgrade for that reason but then it also there's the lifestyle benefit right um you know we only live once and so you've also got to factor in, okay, yeah, maybe it's going to cost me more money in interest. But if I get a tangible, better lifestyle for that, you know, I'm taking on an extra million dollars of debt, but I save 30 minutes a day. I get to see my kids more. I'm much closer to the beach and the things I want to do on weekends. And, you know, we're going to have more space and that's going to, you know, take a lot of pressure off when we're working from home, et cetera. You know, you've got to factor these into the decision. But I'd also want to make sure absolutely that if, and that most of those things are going to also correlate to a better investment. Um, and so the big danger with take doing the upgrade is, is are you getting a better asset? Um, is it going to is that potentially going to claw back a lot of the additional interest costs? Um, is it going to give you a much better lifestyle that you can factor in? And can you afford the increase in repayments plus if interest rates go up? Um, and if so, maybe that means that the big benefit is you get a better asset growing tax-free um, that you can sell one day. Um, and so I think that's when we really talk uh, clients through that upgrade is we're, we're thinking about all those things, not just, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot there because um, there are so many ways you can go about it. Like we've talked about, like, you know, buying buying first, uh, then selling, uh, bridging, you know, relocation loans. Um Going buying it as an investment before you actually move across to that new place, like if you move into the original town, and and the, some of the problems with the the big builds, if you um if you're not sensible about the way that you you manage those costs and pick the right builder, so to speak, um, there's a lot to go on here for upgraders. In the next episode, we're going to talk about first time investors, so people that already have a home, or maybe even they don't have a home, they're investing. What are the things to look for? What are the danger signs in certain properties? Um, why it works, 
like why property investing works and and where it goes wrong. So if you haven't uh, already, you can subscribe to the podcast and uh, you can find out more about Chris at wealthful.com.au. Uh, there'll be full links in the show notes. Chris, as always, mate, thanks for joining me. Awesome to be here, Aaron. Chat to you all soon. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.